I don't normally, I don't normally speak on Mother's Day. I usually allow my wife or someone else, but I have a, actually a, a special burden and a burden that I've been carrying that I, I want to address on this day in, in honoring mothers. And it's the subject of, of the role of women in the church and in the mission of the church. I'm going to talk about God's call for women to be strong and God's call for women to have faith to be used as women of influence to extend the kingdom of God and establish his kingdom in the earth. So the title of my sermon today, that's nice, giving boxes. We want you to be giving, okay? If you're not giving, you're out of here. Okay, that's, that's, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to try this again, Jerry. Here we go. All right. The title of my sermon is giving. And if it's not that, you're going to say this. I am fearless. All right. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll back out of that again. We're going to try this a third time. Take three. The title of my sermon today is called One Tough Mother. Now, you're kind of reactive. Every time I say that to somebody, they don't know how, quite how to react. But you're going to say it with me right now. Ready? One tough mother. All right. And, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll explain ourselves here in a little bit. And you guys just nod your head at me when you're, when you're ready. But uh, I, I want to just lay out a couple of disclaimers here at the beginning. I'm not here to make any woman feel guilty or get into a comparison or feel... Um, Guilty that she doesn't live up to some Captain Marvel superwoman standard. So I'm not here to, you know, make state that every woman fits. Love the booth, love the booth. It's better when there's five people in there trying to solve my problems. But that's nice. That's not my first slide. You got my first slide there, Jer? You get the slide that says One Tough Mother? Just the title. We're just going to look at the title here. All right. You just tell me we're going to go without PowerPoint, and I'll know how to adjust. Yeah. There we go. We got One Tough Mother in the corner. That's nice. That's good. We're just, we'll just, well, there we go. There we go. Nice artwork. Now, One Tough Mother. And, my, and uh, I'm going to control it from here, Jerry. Yes, I got it. Thank you, buddy. All right. My, my point is not to make any woman feel guilty about what's, uh, you know, what standard that she you know, doesn't live up to. And I create some picture of a woman that you feel like I can't keep up with that. And at the same time, I'm not here to add to our cultural attack on masculinity either. But... I do want to say this. My premise is this in this sermon today, is that our view of the nature and the role of women in the church and in the church's mission has been shaped somewhat, not completely, but somewhat by the 19th century industrial revolution and what's called Darwinian determinism. I know it's a fancy word, more than the Bible. And things that we think are biblical are really the result of what took place in the 1800s. And I'll establish my, my speaking on this. It's something I've bathed myself into. And so when we're looking at women, the role of women, the nature of women, the place of women in the church and its mission, sometimes we are tainted by things we don't even realize that we're tainted by. We all have cultural bias in our lenses as we interpret Scripture. And sometimes we don't realize that our, that our cultural lens has been tainted by which we interpret certain things to be true that are not necessarily true. So I just wanted to lay that out so you understand where I'm going with this. So let's go to the Bible. I think the Bible's a good place for us to go. There we go. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, Many Bible scholars teach that, uh, yes, this is dealing with the triune nature of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but it's also involving the angelical, the angelic hosts that, who are also made after and reflective of God's glory and of God's image. 
after our likeness. And let them, everyone say them. Okay, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of, of, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I was at beaches here the other day and a creeping thing just kind of slithered as we were eating outside over some woman's feet. A snake, okay, outside of beaches. Nice big long black stick snake, a, a creeping thing at beaches. And it was a woman who grabbed it by the tail and threw it out on the path. One tough what? Mother. All right, okay. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Six things I just want to bring. If you're taking notes, just, it's not going to be on the point, PowerPoint here. I want you to bring out of this verse. The first thing is that, that God has created man in his image. I am not a dog. I am not a monkey. There's something moral about me. There's something instinctively in me that reflects the nature of God. I know right and I know wrong. I'm not driven by instinct. I'm driven by conscience. I'm driven by something in me that knows the difference between good and evil because we're made in the image of God. The second thing is this, that God made man in his image with two distinct genders, male and female, both reflecting God in, his, in, in their unique way, both reflecting his nature in their, in their unique way, neither superior or inferior, just uniquely expressing the image of God in the distinct and unique way God has made them. The third thing is this, that God gave man and woman a mandate. And that mandate was to do this, to multiply his image through two things, really. One is, yes, through procreation and having families and having children, but also this is applied to the spreading of the gospel and making disciples. Come on, we're here. Paul said, I travail like a woman in birth until Christ is formed in you. We're here to make disciples who would reflect the nature of God. That mandate is given to both men and women the mandate to establish his kingdom in the earth. The, the, the fourth thing is this, is that both male and female were called to take dominion in the earth in this verse. It was just didn't say man, woman just stays home and cooks, but they were to take dominion in the earth together as a couple. Man and woman were the foundation of the house of God. Actually, this is the first church. The first man and the first woman is the first church. It's a microcosm of the church that's going to be birthed that Jesus is going to build. So we get all that out of that verse. My next text is this. Genesis chapter 2, 18, 22 to 23. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, a, a compliment a compliment, not like I'm giving you a compliment, you look beautiful today, you look handsome today, but a compliment means to make something better, to complete something, to make something perfect. I'm giving him a helper. And, and this is what happened. It's, I will make him a helper that's fit right for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God always used miracles. He always used a seed to create a miracle. We know the story of Elijah. Just from a little bit of oil in a jar, he fed himself and he fed a widow and her son for two and a half years. Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he fed with that seed thousands. God took a rib and he made a miraculous creation, a woman. So a woman is a, a miracle. And it's a miracle that is a gift, not only to her husband, but it's a gift to the church and a gift to the world. And we need to receive God's miracles. And everyone said, amen? amen? We need to receive God's miracles. And so then what happened, then the man said, this is, this is at last, is born, this at last is, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, as my good friend Wendell Smith used to say when Adam saw Eve, he said, whoa, man. Because she was taken out of men. So like God, all of God's miracles, he starts with a seed and he creates a miracle. And uh, Adam recognizes something in Eve. 
what he recognizes is that she's a reflection of him and she is his other self. And he sees her and says, bone of my bones. Now, what's important is her effectiveness. Her effectiveness in the family, her effectiveness in the world, her, her effectiveness in the church is predicated upon man's ability to receive her as a gift. She won't be a gift to him unless he receives her as a gift. He receives her as a gift. This is my other self. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I receive her as my other self. You have to receive her for her to become effective. True in the family, true in marriage, true in the church. We have to receive her. Going on. It's the same true today. If women are going to be effective, we're going to have to see them as a miraculous gift to the church, a miraculous gift to society. And as we do, we release her to be all that God has called her to be. No reception, no release of the gift. And so this is a very important principle looking at this. Now, let's go back to this point here that just said God made them male and female. Now, I'm saying this, I, I recognize that, that it's kind of an unpopular concept sometimes in, in modern society to, to say that men and women are different. And of course, the great debate and the great discussion, I'm not here to make that discussion today, is what is, is uh, nature and what is nurtured. Okay, so we, we can have that discussion and go for hours on those things. And I think there are things that are nurtured and not necessarily nature. There's some things that are nature we're trying to nurture people out of. And I think that's dangerous also. But let's just look at just what science says and studies. And you can just check out my own research on this. But let's just give me a few facts on just the differences between men and women. For instance, uh, the retinas of our eyes between men and women are completely different. The retina of a, of a man's eyes and even a boy's eyes, and especially baby boys, are thicker. And they're thicker, and one of the things they can do because they're th thicker, they have the ability to track objects. With a, a young female baby, a, a, a girl baby, they have thinner, thinner retinas. But what that gives them the ability to do is it gives them the ability to see detail in objects. So when you're holding a baby, whether it's a boy or a girl, if it's a boy, he is actually attracted to mobile objects, those things that twirl around and doing that. And a, a, a girl baby will actually be focused on faces and studying the detail of faces. And they've done this hundreds of times in labs and testing this over and over and over again because their retinas are different. How about children playing? Boys tend to want to play in larger groups. They tend to concentrate on the game. They tend to be very competitive and very territorial, by the way. They, they love rough and tumble. I just spent two days with my grandsons down in Los Angeles, Winston, Maverick, and Clive. When I come into Julia's house, the first thing that Maverick says to me, now Winston's saying the same thing, the first thing, it's not, hi, Papa. They say this, you want a piece of me? First thing they say. I mean, they go at it. Knees, elbows, black eyes. I mean, they just go for it. They love to display physical strength. Girls in play and studies really uh, focus on relationship building. They have found in, in game and interaction and in, in play, they share 20 more times with the other people as boys do. Those who have raised boys and raised girls, you, you've seen a little marked difference in their younger years. The girls, going on here, the girls like to use collaborative expression like let's, let's do this, let's do that, and tend to play games about caregiving and relationships. This is in young children without any nurturing, without any coercing, just in studies and watching observation. And studies done on the youngest of children, which is very interesting, girls choose dolls to play with and boys choose trucks. Now, in attempts to try to gender neutralize them, they have given trucks to the girls and they've given the dolls to the boys. You know what the, the girls do with the trucks? They hold the trucks like babies and talk to it like a doll. <laughs> what do the boys do with the baby dolls? 
they, they drag that baby doll in the dirt like a truck and they beat it like a sword. Boys in studies are more likely to take risk in simulated screen situations where they see things that take place. They actually get excited in the studies when they get to witness collisions. <laughs> you usually don't see a bunch of girls at a party with YouTube. I just saw one just the other day. Chad told, showed me one where guys race another guy on the sidewalk and he biffs it and he just slides his face on the concrete. I laughed my head off. I, I just... I just I just think the guys just get big embrasures, just rah, you know. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Probably didn't feel too good. <laughs> and girls are less likely to take risks. That's why so many men are involved in a lot of times drowning accidents. Because they have that risk taking, they don't have those warning things sometimes in their brains. They're circuited different to stop them from doing something stupid that could actually risk their life. Now, differences in the way our brains are circuit, cir circuited does not make one superior and the other inferior. It just makes each one unique. And that's what we need to understand, that differences are good because we see them as both contributing to a whole that is needed. And so we need to recognize this as a gift, not as something that's less, but as something that's a contribution to the whole. The men have 30% more brute strength. But the thing that we, we need to look at with men having 30% more strength is this. The scripture says this, 1 Peter 3, 7. says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman, here we go, as the weaker vessel. So when we're thinking weakness here, we got to understand this. Weak does not mean, weaker does not mean weak. Just because it's 30% less in brute strength doesn't mean the woman is weak. Let me show you a picture here. I want to make my point. This young lady here squatting 200 pounds five times. Her name is uh, Andrea Rusin. Andrea is one of the CrossFit coaches at Fort Vancouver CrossFit. She's been one of my coaches for the last couple of years. She's also a Reebok Games athlete. The ones you watch on ESPN, she's one of those athletes that you see. She's a, one of the top female athletes in the world. Andrea, I asked Andrea to take pictures one day while she was squatting, trying to get pictures for my wife as she was doing fearless stuff to use photos. And I let her know what I would be doing, so I got permission to, to use this. And while she was doing one of our squat workouts, there were five sets of five. And so you had to find a weight. You can do five times. You do five sets on that. That's 200 pounds on her back. She probably weighs no more than 120. She's almost squatting 100% above her weight, double her weight. Five times. That's an athlete. Now, I can do that on a warm-up. But that doesn't make, we call her Rue, it doesn't make Rue weak. In fact, if we did an endurance workout, she would kick my rear end. She would shame me because she's such an outstanding world-class athlete. And she, along with a lot of women that I train with, have this type of capacity. My point is this, weaker does not mean weak. Now, you may say, well, I'm never going to put a 200 pounds on my back and do a squat like that. I'm not asking you to. I'm trying to make a point that even though 30% more brute strength is, is evident, it doesn't mean that a woman is weak. That's my point. That's my point. Let's talk about one of our famous women in the Bible, the Proverbs 31 woman, what I call the ultimate tough mother. Turn, if you got your Bibles with me, turn to Proverbs chapter 31. Let's look at a few verses in Proverbs 31. A lot of people believe that uh, King Lemuel's uh, mother actually wrote this description of the virtuous woman. It wouldn't be, ba it wouldn't be Bathsheba. I don't think she would be the one to, to write that. And so they think it's, it was actually King Lemuel's mother who actually wrote this description of the virtuous woman. Verse 27, I want to bring your, my first thought to you this, to, to you uh, from this particular verse. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She watches over the ways of her household. She's a watchman 
over her family. Now, it's really interesting. I'm not going to try and pronounce the Hebrew word here, but the Hebrew word for watches is the same word that we have for watchmen in the Bible. So not only does she watch over the physical and the emotional needs of her family, but she also watches over the spiritual needs of her family. You know, I've never heard anybody talk about John and Charles Wesley's father. He did have a dad. But what what echoed throughout church history, and there's a debate whether she had 13 children or 17 children. I mean, she was quite the woman. She was one tough what? Yeah, she was, all right. But she, she discipled those kids. In fact, she would have an hour of prayer. You know what her hour of prayer was, ladies? She would actually take her apron and cover her face, and the kids couldn't talk with her for that hour. She was having her sweet hour of prayer. But she discipled. She spent an hour a week with every one of her children. She molded them. She was a watchman over her family and molded two, two young men who actually shook church history. She was a watchman over her family. Second one is verse 13, Proverbs 31 and verse 13. She obtains wool and flax, and she is pleased to work with her hands. She is a skilled worker. She just doesn't, you know, know a few recipes. This lady has many, many gifts and talents and skills in what she does. She developed her skills to be able to fulfill what she was doing. The third thing is in verse 16, 18, and 24. Verse 16, I'm going to read verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. From her own income, she plants a vineyard. I want want you to listen to that again. From her own income, she plants a vineyard. Verse 18. She knows that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out in the night. And in verse 24, it says this. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. So the third thing that she is, is she's a businesswoman. She's a businesswoman. So she's got skills. She watches spiritually over her house, and she's a businesswoman. The fourth thing in this, in verse 16, we read it, we'll read it again. She considers a field and buys it, and out of her own income, she plants a vineyard. You know what she does? She's an investor. She's involved in real estate investment, business investment, agricultural investment, okay, investment of products, Okay, they're sold at the market. She's an investor. The next thing that, that she is in this, in verse 18, uh, we read this. She knows that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out in the night. She is this. She has a strong work ethic because this lady is one tough mother. She has a strong work ethic. Going on, the, 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 the sixth thing she does is this. Let's see, we find this in verse 11. Verse 11, now notice this. The heart of her husband has confidence in her, and he has no lack of gain. <laughs> in other words, he's prospering. What's he doing? He's just hanging out at the gate. Why does he have confidence? She's making all the dough. He's making the money. Now, he probably had some other investments and money and things, inheritance and workers. He could have had that. But he, he, he is reaping the benefits from her business savvy. Amen. She conducts her business. Someone got blessed back there. Here we go. <laughs> she conducts her business without her husband's supervision. He, he just said, go, baby, Go. Go, baby, I like it. I like I like the checkbook. I like the savings account. I like going to bank online. I like the money coming in. I like that you go. You go, girl. You go. He's, he's not having to check with them on every little thing. She does this all independently. Her husband just says, that's my wife. That's my girl. Going on, the, the next thing is this. Verse 20. She extends her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She ministers to the broken and the marginalized. She has great compassion and uses her resources and her wisdom and her character and her virtue to reach out to the poor and the broken around her. The seventh thing, I mean, the eighth thing is this, verse 26. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and loving instruction is on her tongue. She is a wise counselor. And in that, Because the law of kindness is on her tongue. She expresses love in her counsel. 
She is the expression of love. I always like women in all my leadership meetings. The reason being, they're just nicer. <laughs> they're nicer meetings. Everyone behaves more civil. People actually listen to each other. We're not like a bunch of gorillas marking off our territory. You know, putting our smell on something so the other elder won't encroach on that. And I find that when we have women in meetings, we actually listen to each other and get more work done as a team. In business, they found that women in business are far greater mentors than men are in the business arena in corporate America. They're less threatened. They, they, they have a nurturing aspect, the law of expression. Women teach us how to love. Women really te do teach us how to love. Men actually teach us how to fight. But women teach us how to, how to love and that great contribution that's there. Let's go on a little bit more into history here. Let's talk about the tough mothers of Sparta. I'm going to go a little bit deeper into ancient history, contemporary with biblical times, is the, is, the, is the city of Sparta. If you know anything about Western history, you'll know this, that Greece was made up of city-states. They weren't like one collective country. They were actually city-states. Sometimes they fought against each other. In fact, we went to the Olympiad this summer. Sue and I did with with Dave and Wendy Beach and uh, on our 40th anniversary. We went to the place where they had the first, I forget how many games were there for how many hundreds of years. Most of the games in ancient Greece were at this Olympic stadium. The Olympics were to actually take the place of battle. And when you're, you, you won disputes over your athletes winning, it's like a champion going out like Goliath and David. That's what the Olympics were all about. But Sparta was a military uh, state and that's the way they saw how they were going to survive and uh, it was it was everything was about the military it was an austere culture in the sense that they were all on strict diets they lived they believed in modest living sacrifice for the whole everything was sacrificed for the greater good of Sparta and what they would do they would take a young boy at the age of seven separate him from his mother and he would go to military school and he would serve in the military till he was 60 years old his mother would give up her son at the age of seven. Yes, you would see him from time to time, but he was trained in rigorous military training, having to fight for food and survive the elements. And, and, and the Spartans were incredible, incredible, incredible uh, athletes, and they were incredible military people because all they did was train. They trained, they trained, they trained, they trained, and they worked together as a unit. So when you saw the movie 300, there's a lot of embellishment there, but they were that tough, and there were 300 that took on thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Persians at Thermopylae because everyone feared how they fought, and they fought with great skill and great endurance. But what was interesting about this military culture of Sparta was their treatment of women. Women, unlike other Greek city-states, were allowed education. They were educated. They also were encouraged to participate in athletics, and so women actually wrestled, and women ran, threw javelin, and did all sorts of things, unlike other Greek city-states, and they were educated. So the women of Sparta were known for a couple of things. One, they were known for their incredible beauty. They wore no makeup. The barn didn't need to be painted. <laughs> they, were, they were athletic, and they were highly intelligent. And they played a major role in Sparta's history. The mothers of Sparta were one tough mothers. Just a few stories of that. A Spartan mother was handed her, she had handed her son his shield on the way to a battle as he was prepared to march forward with the troops. And she said these things, come back with this or on it. A mother in Sparta a messenger returned to Sparta from battle and said to one mother, I, I bring sad news. Your son was killed in battle facing the enemy. And the mother said, he is my son. And then the, the messenger said, but I have good news. Your other your other's son fled from the enemy and is, and is unhurt. He's alive. And the mother replied, he is not my son. Now you may, may think like these, these ladies are like cold hearted and and ruthless. And Bob, you're trying to put this as biblical? No, I don't think they were. They understood the survival of the, of, of the nation of Sparta was contingent upon their military succeeding. And if they weakened, they were destroyed. They were actually being selfless. 
So let's go to the famous Battle of Thermopylae. And you guys probably know that from the movie 300 that came out here a few years ago. And, you know, it was kind of artistically kind of embellished and, and intense. It wasn't quite like that. But it is true. 300 men stood on a pass near the coast that the Persian army had to go through. They were able to bunch it up and take on thousands and thousands and thousands of Persians. And they did it for three days. They held them off. Leonidas, the the king, knew that they were all going to die. And so he chose 300 warriors, but he didn't choose 300 warriors who were the the most courageous because all Spartan soldiers were courageous. They were known for their courage. He chose 300 Spartans based on their wives and their mothers because he he knew that they were going to die. And he he didn't want the, the, the mothers and the wives of these soldiers overwhelmed with grief and despair and weeping when they needed to be actually proclamators of patriotism to rally the nation to defeat the the Spartans. So he chose these soldiers based on their mothers. And what happened within a year? Sparta rallied and Sparta defeated a far greater and a far bigger Persian army and won and actually saved Western civilization. We owe Western civilization to the daughters and the mothers of Sparta. We don't think of that when we're kind of thinking of history. We think about those guys with those greased up, oiled up muscles that have been training in the gym for a movie, and we think about that. We don't think it was the mothers who were able to say, this was the cause, and our sons come home on the shields, and we're going to proclaim that Sparta needs to continue to rally, and it was those mothers that won the day and won the war. The tough mothers of Sparta. Now, looking at all this and looking at how women are described in Genesis and how a woman is described in Proverbs 31 and ancient cultures like Sparta, I have a question that I, I think that we need, to, we, we need to think about. How did we go from business women and farmers and, uh, and uh, you know, the women of Sparta and everything else, how, how, did, we, how did we go from from them to the fainting couch. Let me talk, uh, let me talk, whoops, go back here. That's nice. I want to go back to Queen Victoria. Okay, I can't go backwards on this. Oh, here we go. Here, here, here we go. Oh, here we go. Let's go Queen Victoria. And uh, Queen Victoria, um, I'm not blaming Queen Victoria for this, but something took place in the age of Queen Victoria. Two things took place. The first thing that took place was what's called the Industrial Revolution. And what the Industrial Revolution did, it it, it, it created a great blow to women and their role even in family issues. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, women ran shops with their husbands. Women worked farms with their husbands. Women crossed the West with their husbands. They plowed, they fed animals, they worked with their hands, they worked in the fields, they worked in the shops, they exchanged money, they were in the marketplace. But when we created mass production, small businesses were taken away and agrarian culture was basically severely downsized. So what do we do with women? Well, the second thing that took place during the Victorian era was what was called social Darwinism. And the view was this, is that men had evolved faster than women, and therefore women weren't uh, made for the workplace. And women were actually geared for domestic duties and household duties, and and, uh, they were were just limited to that. They, they, They couldn't do anything else. And you may be appalled by this, but... But even doctors in the 1800s believed if a woman got educated, her uterus would be enlarged and she wouldn't be able to have children. (laughs) Think about that one. (laughs) This all happened in the Victorian age. And so what we did is we relegated women to the place of the couch and they couldn't handle stress and they couldn't handle bad news and and, uh, and what began to take place, this, this farmer lady out here in the West who's, who's plowing a bunch of manure and trying to f- cook 
with buffalo chips and feed her family and everything else and plowing out there in the dust bowl and, and trying to get crops and you know out in the plains of Colorado or wherever they might be on the Oregon Trail and everything else was, was, was all of a sudden you're just going to be now, you're going to wear a corset and you're going to stay in a house and you're going to act real ladylike and you're going to act weak because that's what you are, weak. Remember, weaker is not weak. And so we went in this Victorian age from this, this woman who settled the West and these women who did small businesses and they raised farms and everything else. We went from that, we went to what's known today as the fainting couch. How many of people have seen old black and white, you know, old silent movies and the women are always like swooning and, and laying back? Well, that, you may laugh at that, but that was culture. What is the fainting couch? A fainting couch was a couch they had in another parlor. It had kind of an upright on one end where the woman could kind of lay at an incline where when she got faint and she got weak in public settings, she would go into that room and, and faint. And women would swoon and women would faint and, and they would go there. What, what happened to the mothers of Sparta? What happened to the Proverbs 31 woman? What happened to the women who settled the Oregon... The, the, the Oregon Territory. What, what, what happened to the women who worked with their businesses with their husband? What, what happened to them? They got marginalized into this role, into this view of what a woman was like. Now, there's some theories behind the fainting couch. And you'd be Bob, this is really kind of silly. Well, yeah, it's silly, but it's really true. Theory one, it was their corsets actually choking their diaphragm and causing them to lose oxygen. And they were passing out because they were sucking all the air out of them. The second was this, theory is this, is that feigning and swooning was vogue. And so it became very popular for women to do this. And it was kind of part of what she did. And so they just kind of added to this and they kind of played with this. And, and, and we, you know what we're doing? We're, we're, we're moving women out of the great Genesis mandate. The third, the third theory, and I don't mean to be indiscreet here. I'll be as discreet as I can. But women were, were not supposed to really have any sexual drive, okay, in the theory in the Victorian era. So what happened when women passed out, one of, the, one of the remedies was if a doctor was there, when she would go on the fainting couch during the party, she would get a pelvic massage. I'm not going to think through what that looked like. Okay? But the issue is they thought maybe that was her way. There's a lot of things contributed to women acting this way in the 1800s that took away the way the women were acting in the 1700s what they were doing on the farm and what they were doing in the family business and what they were doing and making their investments and, and everything else. So in many ways, we've been climbing out of the Victorian age. In many ways, we were actually shaking off Darwinian thought and coming back to a biblical basis of what God wants women to do along with men in the house of God. Let's talk about God's redemptive army. Galatians chapter 3, 28 to 29 describes this. Galatians chapter 3, 28 to 29 says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now this is God's army to preach the gospel Go to the nations to plant churches, to make disciples, to extend the kingdom of God in the earth, to infiltrate society, to have influence, wisdom, and counsel, to be the expression of love and nurturing and reflect the very, very nature of God to the nations of the earth. This is God's army. The Holy Spirit has no gender bias. We'll talk about this when we're going to start a series next week called The Body. He has no gender bias. So, where do we start? Well, we start this way. Tough mothers do tough things. So I actually say this to all of you. If any of us, men or women, want to get tough, you're going to have to just start doing tough things. 
I know that sounds really harsh and weird, but you're going to have to push yourself. You're going to have to stretch yourself. You're going to have to do the uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe you're going to run a marathon. Maybe not. Maybe you're going to run around the block. Maybe you're going to get a degree. Maybe you're going to stop. I'm going to go get a degree. Maybe you're going to go on a two-week mission trip someplace where you sleep in a hammock and five-star hotels. Lay on your back. You can count all the stars. One, two, three, four, five. Sleep with the lizards and the snakes. Maybe you're going to go do something like that. Maybe, maybe you're going to break off stereotypes. Maybe you're going to break off lies. Maybe you're just going to say, you know, I'm going to push myself to move forward out of my present weakness. If I've somehow allowed myself to get intimidated in a corner, that this is the way I have to be. Now, saying all that, I want to take the, the last 10 minutes to do something special. I want, to, I want to bring somebody up here that uh, I consider to be one tough mother. And that is my wife, Sue. So, Sue, would you come on up here? You can, you can sit where, you can stand where, you can stand wherever you want, honey. Now, I know... To many of you, you, you look at Sue and she's tender, and she is, because she has the expression of love in her, and I think she beautifies the church, and she is a very much a woman. She is a girly girl, okay? She is. But a lot of people don't realize how tough my wife is, and uh, I'm going to kind of bring that out a little bit in the area of uh, just asking her some questions here. So, Sue, question number one. What were some of the physical challenges that you took on at the age of 18? Both a result of meeting me <laughs> and what you took on at UC Irvine when you went to UC Irvine. What were some of those things? Yeah, that was, that, you were the uh, emotional challenge, actually. <laughs> but you know that. <laughs> the physical challenge. <laughs> Honestly, I have a, uh, this is such an honor, and I, I have to give tribute to my mom and my grandmother, and I didn't know my great-grandmother, but um, some very strong women that both embodied very feminine qualities, but super strong, independent thinking, decision-making women um, all the time, and they were a great role model. Um, one of the things that happened when I was 18, I didn't get saved till I was 21, I think I've told that story, but um, Bob and I were dating, and he was... Uh, he got me into running, and so I think running just became a thing. And my girls are all running uh, nowadays, and I love watching them run races. But th this is the thing that was kind of new to me, was because um, I was not very involved in sports uh, at the time. So running, Bob's like, let's go running. And the beach is right there. I grew up by the beach. So we did a lot of running. I started jogging and running and loving it. Bought my first Nikes. 1974, started running, still do, jog, jogging. What else did you do during that time period? Oh, yeah, and so ballet was, he wanted me to bring this up, but I um, still love ballet, and ballet is, uh, although you may never have seen ballet, it is not a simple, easy sport. It's actually really a sport, but I did a, um, a first year at college, I took ballet. Actually, every year I took ballet in college and then kept up kept going with it, but one just quick story, because this was the thing with ballet, you usually start when you're like a little tiny girl. My mom was not into the ballet lessons and the cost of it, so I never had the chance, and she always said, no, you're going to do piano lessons, not ballet, but anyway, I took ballet class, and I had a teacher that was, um, he's, I was looking up his name, he was very famous, he, he actually choreographed a bunch of famous ballets, but he was an old school, um, and he had, like, they br he brought a cane in to class, and if you were not, if your posture wasn't right, he would just take a, a whack at any girl at any time. That was, like, how you improve the class, I guess. He'd walk around and, like, whack people in the back or the belly to get posture correct, and then he'd say a bunch of stuff about your, he was... Like, kind of the beginning, you know, the epitome of the body shaming kind of world. Like, so, actually, yeah, like, like but what, in ballet. What kind, of, what kind of things did he say? Yeah, just like, you don't belong in this class. My job is to try to kick you out of here, you know, like that kind of stuff. So, he was really mean. He was a mean, mean old guy. And But 
what was funny about it is like for me, that was a challenge statement. Like I am not quitting and you are not gonna shame me out of this class, even though I was way behind because I hadn't taken it as a kid, but I loved it. I just love ballet and still do. And you know, you just kind of determine, and I think that's kind of who I am, determining that if this is something you love, no matter how hard it is, you want to just passionately get into it and press through How many years obstacles. of ballet do you think you've done, honey? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Guess. I don't know. No, 15, no, no gonna, 20, 15 I don't know. 20 years. Okay. I don't know. A lot of years. Okay, in 1977, um, you, you decided to transfer from UC Irvine to the University of Washington so that you and I could build a closer relationship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how, did your, uh, how did your parents respond and how did you survive financially to get through school? Um, well, we had a kind of a thing in our house that my parents would pay for college if I stayed in California. And so this was, to them, the craziest of ideas. All the parents that know what out-of-state tuition, just getting your kids through college is a great, it's a great um, you know, challenge financially. So uh, I didn't understand, and being you know, all smart as I thought I was, I didn't understand what non-residency tuition costs were until I walked up to the registrar with my checkbook and... Uh, they so, told me so, my. So, I yeah. clarify this. Did your parents offer you any no, money? No, they said no money. No, no money if you at all. move out of state, there's no financial support, zero. And so I had worked a bit through, well, I worked always, but like part time jobs. What can you do when you're, you know, you only have a high school degree? But I actually started um, my journey at University of Washington with a determination I was going to sort of avoid that non-residency fee and figure it out. So first thing I found out was that it wasn't, it wasn't like an unavoidable thing. And for a year, you have to pay it. But I did find out this little loophole is that if you work, this was back in the day, so it's probably not there. But if you work two jobs for more than 21 hours on campus, if you worked a job for more than 21 hours on campus, you were eligible for non for the um, residency tuition the discount the regular tuition and they had made that up for um, international students and so it was afforded them and it was written that way so when I found that out I'm like even though I'm not an international student I actually can qualify for this and they went around we went round and round they finally allowed me because I had to work 21 hours so I got two on-campus jobs working in food court services whatever but the first job, they go, no, we can't hire you for more than 20. You'll have to find a second employer on campus. So I found two employers. Worked, um, like, the first morning. Shifts kind of rotated. And then I got a job. Free room and board. And this is really God. He got, God really set this up for me to get up to Washington because here I am, right? I'm here. But the reason um, I got free room and board was because uh, the, this church was looking for somebody to cook and shop for their house. So uh, their, their campus, um, Christian college student campus house. How many it was lived, a sorority how, how house. Lived, how many lived in the house? There were 20 guys in the guy's house, and there was about eight girls. And I had not a lot of cooking experience to date, and I sold them, like, on my, I guess, my winning, convincing smile that I could, in fact, shop and cook for 28 people every night for dinner. Did it because free room and board is a good deal. So that was it. What, what, other, what other jobs did you have there? Worked at a, I did motel maid one um, season and that was fun, why was not that such really. A, why was that such a good job? And how come the ladies didn't like you? Yeah, they didn't like me. That's because one of the things that happens in, I guess anybody been in a motel made our house cleaning. Um, they have like a inner circle culture of honor, like who knows that, but I didn't know that as a college student. And so I was kind of running circles around the faster you get. So the rule was if you got all your rooms done, I thought you're done. So I'm just like, I'm gonna be fast. Well, they came up, kind of ganged up on me and said, no, if you're done first, you do all our rooms. 
or we are going to get you fired. So they were kind of mean. It was kind of a mean girl club I found out at the motel. But in the good part of that, I learned um, that in that, you know, just doing that, I, I, that was really good money, too, for the, time, for the day. But that was um, just another way God provided an open door for a job that was paying better than minimum wage. So, so. what was the, the great provision God brought you? And the best, the best money I ever made, and probably for, you know, kind of the date that you have to consider. But it, it was um, this guy at the church he was going to said they had an opening. And so this was the first year... Um, they had passed a federal law that they had to hire women in every field in the, that existed. And so I applied as the first woman to work in a lumber mill in Tacoma. And I worked, I wore a hard hat, and um, I was driving a truck. I drove a truck in a, a lumber mill, and they gave me a few tips. The guys were fairly... Um, it was a new culture, I'd say, you know, language and, and always. I don't know how else to say it, but uh, yeah, if, if you kind of considered, I came from, uh, you know, like a nice high school experience to college, and now I'm like dropped in the middle of another world. This, guy, this group of guys uh, determined, they also wanted to get me out of there, because again, I was like in a brand new, I was in a, a, a world of men working with, um, things that were dangerous. So I drove this truck. I burned out the clutch two times. They had to take it to the shop. They had to show me how to drive a truck that had that many gears. I finally figured it out. Got them mad. Got the shop mad. Then the guys that drove these huge log lifters called Laternos, they lift these huge logs and put them up on the, on the, it's like a shelf that goes into the sawmill. The guy's like, don't get behind them. They can't see you. You will be like a bug to them. They will never even feel it when they run over you. So don't drive, I mean, don't get behind them even in your truck. So those are kind of the other things. And then mostly I worked there just because of this guy. But um, I felt, again, God, those were the days I was new Christian and I was reading the Bible all the time. And I had scripture cards in my pocket because I didn't think. So one day I'm out there with these scripture cards, memorizing scripture while I'm taking a break, and these guys just gave me the worst time. I was like, it, it, you just, it was just a great learning experience, but honestly, God, I shared my faith. I don't know. It, I don't think anybody there got saved. However, you never know. You never know what, what reason and why, but it was a wonderful uh, challenging. I do say one thing about it was it was fairly dangerous. I mean, I'm making it fun, but it was a very dangerous job in a lot of ways. So um, I did pray when I started the job, and then when they, one day they put me on the green chain, which was where you pull green lumber off and stack it for the next thing to happen, like they take a, so they gave me the smallest lumber, but I was in so much pain of that, doing that for a couple days that they finally had mercy and put me back on the truck, so that was good. All right, so one last question here. You're a diverse woman. Let everyone know what you do in, in ministry, what you do vocationally, and uh, also what you do in the area of personal development uh, and, and interest. Describe your diversity. Well, you guys already know this, but um, I am pastoring on staff with Bob. I love being here. I love you, honey. Thank you. I was... Um, I went to college to be a zoologist, which... I worked for a fisheries department in the state of Washington for four years, cutting up salmon, loved it, worked out in hatcheries. Um, but when Bob said ministry is our call, and the Lord actually said that to us, I felt pretty, like, <laughs> I felt like, God, seriously, I'm, I'm having a vision of me being like Jacques Cousteau in a boat. How's that going to work? How, how are we going to be in ministry and do all that I have to do. And I think God absolutely showed me how wonderful it is to be in his purpose and his destiny and know that he can switch things around on you, but it's, it's always good for you. And it's, he knows actually how you're designed better than you do, right? One of the things that um, when we started ministering with youth first um, was that I wasn't super gifted in the area of counseling. But I, I, one thing that 
kind of stepped up my game, I'll say, is when um, I started just praying for people. When I didn't know what to say, I'm like, let's just pray. <laughs> it's always a good counseling technique if you don't know what to tell someone. And God absolutely would show up and give me words of wisdom and counsel, even before I knew the word deeply and got into it. But one of those things that is interesting about God is he'll call you in areas that you actually feel weak. And, and he gives you um, the abilities through his power, not through your power, right? We, we say that scripture, not, you know, not by my, but by power, or by power, but by your spirit. And one of the things that was interesting, and that would be probably, oh, I don't know, in the 80s, maybe 90s, was praying for people and then suddenly getting a word of knowledge, a, a divine answer to prayer in the moment, and people saying, wow, how'd you know that? How'd you know that? And I recognized that in my weakness, God actually, in my weakness in ministry, God absolutely was there to show me the way, to give me the way to pray, how to pray, what to pray, um, prophetic words, words of healing in the moment, and just prepare me for all of that. I, I don't know how, how he does it specifically. Um, I do know that when I started digging into prayer in the word and getting more solidly understanding of the Bible, I received more of that. So I think God was giving me a taste. And then just advice to anyone, as you dig in and press in, he absolutely fills all the gaps in for you. What are the other things you do? What do you do in the, in the school system here? Oh, yeah. So after fisheries, I got, I got my, um, my degree in education or after zoology, and so I teach science. I still sub-teach, and I love it as a ministry opportunity. I actually had, have divine appointments in the public schools. I teach uh, middle school and high school on-call subbing in three districts. So. And what's your latest interest? What, what skill have you developed musically? Oh, yeah, and I play harp. You play I, the I've harp. always played piano, but now I'm like seven years in, and I love, love yeah. it. I would like people like to see Sue up here with a harp. Well, let's give a hand to one tough mother right here, all right? Would you stand to your feet? So this is what we got. It was Mother's Day. We always get moms. We always get gifts as moms. You're gonna you're gonna get a, a button if you're a mother walking out today. That button says this, one tough mother. <laughs> you get to wear it. People are going to ask you, what's that about? It's about me not just kind of surrendering what people think I should be as a woman, but being strong and, and, and who God has made me and fulfilling his destiny in my life. Be a great witnessing tool. Second thing we have is we have actually a banner out there. This is one tough mother. You want, you want to get your picture taken with your family? Well, by yourself, with your other, maybe some other girlfriends. You want to take a, a picture with your one tough mother button, okay? Or without your one tough mother button. Don't have to wear it, but that's there for you too. I hope you take advantage of that. I always wanna say this. Uh, we love women in this church. All the men said amen. amen. Okay, we just don't appreciate them just for their beauty and their kindness and all, their, all the things that women are as a contribution, but also that they are part of the army of God and the spiritual giftings that they have and how God is going to mightily use them to extend the kingdom of God. Not taking away their femininity or, ma or our masculinity as men, but together, male and female, fulfilling the mandate to extend the kingdom throughout the earth. But to do that, to fulfill the Great Commission, there might be hardship, there might be testing, there might be suffering, there might be all these things we go through. We're going to have to, men and women, we're going to have to be tough. I'm not trying to be John Wayne. I'm not trying to, you know, just... Uh, lay out a, let's just be like cold and heartless like the Spartans. I use that as an object lesson. But the idea is that if we're going to do tough things, we're going to have to be tough. We're going to have to be tough men. We're going to have to be tough women. Tender hearts, alligator skin and tender hearts. But we're going to have to, we're going to, have to get strong. We're going to have to be courageous. And it's just not the men. It's men and women. And we all got to go after what God wants to do in and through us. We just got done with a great prophetic commissioning. And one of the great themes of that 
is how God's going to use and anoint and release women in this church. And a very strong word to our church in that, in that realm. So, Father, today, I bless uh, everyone here. I bless especially every mom, married, single, young mother, pregnant, ready to have children. We just bless moms, bless grandmas. We, we thank you. We thank you for the courage that they've exhibited in their life. We thank you for the sacrifices that they have made. We thank you for the love and the wisdom that they have given. We thank you for the contribution they've been to the church. And we pray, Lord, that you would enlarge their vision, enlarge their hearts, and enlarge their minds to fulfill their destiny. May they not relegate it to somebody else because you've called them. Lord, you used Deborah not because you couldn't find anybody else, but because you used Deborah. You used Holda, not because you couldn't find anybody else, because you used Holda. You used Miriam, because, not because you couldn't use anybody else, but you chose to use Miriam. And on and on, you used great women who won battles, who raised the dead, who proclaimed the gospel. And I thank you today for the women of this church. Anoint them with a fresh anointing, with a fresh vision of who you called them to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. God bless you guys.